Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. All right, we are podcast only this week. Thanks so much for hanging out with us and bearing with us the last couple weeks, couple months. It's been a crazy whirlwind here on the OBS. We've done some podcast only shows. We've done some live radio shows. Right now, WNUR is replacing its transmitters, moving to HD, which is awesome for them and awesome for us. Only problem is we can't be live on the radio, so we're podcast only this week. We're off next week for Labor Day. We're back podcast only the week after that, September 11th, and then hopefully September 18th as we kick off season three. What? Season three. We're going to be back live, WNUR. Hey, you can still leave us a voicemail, 224-218-9box, 224-218-9269. All right, this week, creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with the newly appointed music director of Chicago Opera Theater, Lydia Yankovskaya. This exclusive half-hour interview introduces you to a major player in the Chicago opera scene as they talk about Yankovskaya's training, her opinions on bel canto opera, her initiative called the Refugee Orchestra Project, Technology and Opera, the COT Young Artist Program, and she reveals some thoughts on future seasons for Chicago Opera Theater. Lydia Yankovskaya coming up in just a few minutes. And then in the hometown team, Oliver brings you another interview, this time with soprano Claire DeVizio. DeVizio is the artistic director of Thompson Street Opera. Excuse me, I think executive director of Thompson Street. It's a new storefront opera company with a very specific mission to serve the works of living composers. Thompson Street kicks off their 2017-18 season this weekend with a comic book hero-themed opera called Cosmic Ray and the Amazing Chris. That is in 40 minutes or so, that segment. And, of course, you're going to get all your opera headlines and my hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. Just have a fantastic show this week, despite all the ins and downs and ups and outs. Thank goodness we are oh so close to college football season. Talk about ups and downs. Cubs have been up and down and up and down this whole season. On the up right now, leading the NL Central, for me... I'm more excited about college football. Huge Michigan Wolverines fan. College football season for them kicks off this Saturday, September 3rd. I will be camping, by the way. Maybe I'll be listening to the game on my transistor radio. 
I got high hopes for the Wolverines this year. Hey, let me know if you watch college football. You can email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Do you follow opera and do you follow college football? If so, who's your team? Let me know, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Let's get this show on the road. Let's um, talk some opera. Let's go inside the huddle. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. I am so excited to be sitting here in the offices of Chicago Opera Theater with Lydia Yankovskaya, the newly appointed artistic music director of Chicago Opera Theater. So uh, I'd like to start uh, by letting you tell us a little bit about um, training, your education, your youth, you know. Well, I grew up uh, largely in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh-huh. and then my family immigrated to the United States, so upstate New York, the Albany area. But my mother is a big music lover, so I was very fortunate to spend my childhood not only studying music, but attending many, many concerts, both in St. Petersburg, where I regularly went to the Mariinsky and to see the symphony, uh. and also when I moved to the Albany area, because right uh, Albany, Saratoga, which is right near Albany, is the a Saratoga Performing Arts Center is the summer home of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York City Ballet, and there are amazing other performances that happen there throughout the year. But I studied voice. I, I sang in a very intensive children's chorus as a child in the St. Petersburg Children's Chorus of Radio and Television, and I played piano starting at a very young age and also violin, and huh. I was fortunate, like I said, that my mother absolutely loved music and so me always made it a top priority. Just a little side, like bar here, um, I noticed that you went to Vassar. Mm-hmm. So we only have like one degree of separation because I consider Drew Minter, Drew Minter to be one of my mentors yeah. and to be a friend. Uh, anything you want to share about Vassar, your experience there? Absolutely loved it there. Couldn't have ended up in a better place. Drew actually is coming to town this year because he's working with Haymarket Art. Yeah, 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 he's singing and directing, I believe. Yeah. Uh, which is very exciting. But I um, had the most amazing teachers at Vassar all around, and teachers who not only were fabulous musicians, but also were so incredibly generous with their time. Um, It's because Vassar is only an hour and a half from New York City, Mm -hmm. you have people who are really at the top of their fields, many of whom are also teaching at the conservatories in New York, but it's also a very small liberal arts program, and so the amount of attention is so personalized. Most of my classes were four or five people, and I was able to study voice and piano and conducting very Mm. seriously there, and to run and lead a new new music ensemble that was student-run, that was um, a chorus and a roster of about 50 instrumentalists that we'd shift around for various projects. And to have that opportunity as an undergraduate, in addition to studying languages on a very high level, I also um, did most of a major in philosophy. And all of those things combined, it was just an incredible opportunity and with no distractions on a small Labard school campus. So it sounds like all along you have had voice or singing as part of your training. Does that mean that, you know, getting to opera as a conductor was like a natural thing for you? In a way, I always loved to sing. I never pursued it as a career path or as even my primary instrument. But I sang seriously and I sang even professionally, both as a soloist in some operatic productions mm. and, and as a choral singer. All the way through grad school and graduate school, I studied voice while I was... Uh, conducting, of course, was my main study, but I studied voice on the side with the head of the BU Opera Institute, Sharon Daniels. And... 
for me, singing is such an essential part of music in general. The first music making that we made as human beings and that all human beings continue to make, regardless of where they live in the world, is singing and using the human voice. We're all singers. We are. We're all singers. Everybody's assumed to be able to sing when you're a child. Yes, and I think everybody does and can, even if they're not aware of it. Even speaking in a way is like singing. And so much of the classical music tradition comes out of that. And so much of the way we write or the way we approach voice leading or the way we approach counterpoint comes from singing. So to me, as a musician, it is essential to understand the voice and to be a singer, at least in some sense. And that was one of my ways to opera. Of course, I uh, was a pianist and that was always my primary instrument. And I also was a violinist. And I started conducting when I was only 17. I was very fortunate to have a youth orchestra conductor who saw something that he thought was promising and asked me if I wanted to get up and conduct the orchestra. And I didn't really know what I was doing yet. (laughs) Um, It's an orchestra where I was a violinist, and so I was leading sectionals normally already, and I had won a piano concerto with a competition with them with a piano concerto. So I had worked with the orchestra as a leader already, but not uh, conducting. And he came up to me and he said, would you like to conduct this movement of a Dvorak symphony at our next concert? And I didn't even know that that was an option or a possibility. I would never have asked. But because he offered this, I started studying and really understanding how to dissect a score and figuring out physically what it meant to conduct and taking lessons. And I conducted uh, this movement of a symphony, and I fell in love with conducting and continued to conduct since then. Hmm. Well, for those who have listened to my other endeavor was I did a podcast for 10 years uh, called Opera Now and the host and producer attended Castleton Festival as a singer. Uh, It looks like you were at Castleton too. I wonder if there's a connection there, but can you tell us about Lauren Mazel and about being there? Of course. Being there for me was pivotal. I went there very soon after graduate school and it was actually the last year of Lauren Mazel's life. So it was a very unusual time at the festival. Uh, I was there throughout for three months or something like that over the course of the summer. And um, Mazel was very present and very involved in everything, but he was physically uh, quite ill at the time. And so we ended up conducting most things in his stead as his assistants. And my first day there, I was woken up at 9 a.m. and told that at 10 a.m. I had to conduct an entire zitz probe of Madame Butterfly, (laughs) having never worked with the singers and having never worked with that orchestra because Mazelle wasn't feeling well and I had just arrived the day before. And what's worse is he sat at the very back of the orchestra, watching the entire rehearsal and occasionally giving comments. Uh, But luckily, it seems that he was happy enough with what I did that I ended up conducting a lot that summer. And to have his insight and input into what we were doing and into what I was doing was so incredibly valuable. I conducted an inordinate swath of repertoire and spanning all periods, including Madame Butterfly and Mozart works and uh, uh, things from other genres and periods. And um, to have Mazel's incredible mind there Mm -hmm. and to have his thoughts and to understand what are the things 
that really matter or that someone with that kind of experience finds important because Mazel started conducting when he was a small child. There are mm -hmm. videos of YouTube of little Mazel at age 12 or something <laughs> like that conducting professional orchestras. Uh, so this is a man with more experience than really anyone alive mm. at the time. That's a whole other interview. I, is there <laughs> any one thing or a couple things that you would like to impart? Because a lot of singers listen to this show like, you know, that he has said about singing or has told to singers that might be really helpful and getting to work with an orchestra. Because I feel like yeah. a lot of people who go through a voice program, um, their first time actually singing with an orchestra and singing on stage, everything gets derailed because mm -hmm. they're just not used to the experience. Like, the distance between the band and the singer, how the, your voice feels in the hall, like, all those things can really... Uh, distinguish the great singers from the people who just have good training, you know? Well, I think something that Mazel was very aware of is just great musicianship. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's so important. There are many people with beautiful voices. Mm -hmm. But a singer who, first of all, shapes the lines beautifully and phrases beautifully, because no matter how beautiful your voice is, if you don't deliver the text and don't deliver the phrasing and don't shape the music in a way that conveys its emotional meaning, yeah. underpinnings yeah. and meaning, then it doesn't quite work. And the second thing that I think was very important to him, but that's also very important all around, is being aware of the verticality of the score and being really aware of what the orchestra is doing so that it's not just I am singing my line beautifully and somewhere underneath there is an orchestra <laughs> supporting what I'm doing, yeah. but recognizing that it is a unified whole. And if as a singer, and I strongly believe this as well, if as a singer one recognizes that this is something greater and you are part of this greater thing and you are interacting with the orchestra, you're always mm -hmm. in duet with the orchestra, sometimes yeah. you are accompanying the orchestra, yeah. sometimes they're accompanying you, sometimes you're creating counterpoint together yeah. and how important that is. So I'm just going to test your prejudices here. <laughs> how do you feel about bel canto opera? I like bel canto opera. It's great. Okay. It has its own place. I think okay. I, I people often ask you, what's your favorite composer? Or what's yeah. your favorite period or whatever? I'm not I don't find that I'm prejudiced against one or another or towards one or another. Um, there are sure some kinds of music that I really enjoy performing. But I think uh, bel canto has its own very important place. And I think if we hadn't developed the capabilities of the human voice mm -hmm. in the way that we did d during this period. There are many things that are happening musically today also that would not be possible. Okay. That's a great answer. Um, I find sometimes that, you know, sophisticated conductors such as yourself kind of poo-poo bel canto because it doesn't give the conductor much to do except, you know, follow and support, you know? I don't always agree with that. I think sometimes you are following and supporting, but you do another types of repertoire as well. Yeah. And in Volcanto, there are also some interactions between what the orchestra is doing and what the singer is doing. And I actually think for an orchestra, especially a contemporary orchestra, performing bel canto is much harder than it looks on the page. I know. <laughs> I think many people make the mistake of seeing that it's boom, chuck, chuck all yeah. the time or some sort of five repeated five, one, four, yeah. five, one chords. And they assume that the shaping and the phrasing is very simplistic and that there's not much to do there. But that's not really the case. And because it looks simple, it becomes so much more difficult to really give it shape and make it musical. Because I think the result of this prejudice that you mentioned 
as a result of it, you often hear very bad performances yes. of bel canto <laughs> And people are disengaged, like the orchestra's disengaged, and exactly. the conductor's disengaged. It's like, oh. But in reality, it requires more concentration than anything else because you have to be so aware of everything happening around you, of the singer, of the orchestra being really unified and of shaping things in a very specified and very planned way. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Oh, I love your answer. Thank you. <laughs> of course. So um, I do want to get to Chicago Opera Theater proper, but uh, just I want to ask you a little bit about the Refugee Orchestra Project. And I remember when you, your appointment was first announced, I was like digging around, and I saw that you brought some, uh, like, singers to the U.S. that, uh, like, maybe from Syria or from Lebanon, I forget exactly, or maybe all those places. Uh, I just want to hear about that because that's super interesting, and, like, we're, like, in this political climate right now, this moment where I feel like these things are actually important to do these things, you know? Yeah, so the Refugee Orchestra Project showcases music by refugee composers and features refugee performers. I myself actually came to this country as a refugee with my family in the 90s and certainly would not be performing music if I didn't have that opportunity. Other things aside, uh, HIAS, which was the sponsoring agency for my family, also paid for my music lessons when I was in college and made it possible for me to study what I study now. But this country has been very generous to me and as it has to many, many people throughout the ages. And so I formed this organization as a way to showcase the incredible contributions that refugees and immigrants bring to our nation. Uh, in the music community in particular, as you know, there are so many people from all over the world. And because music is a universal language, you mm -hmm. do not need to have any specialized cultural understanding in the same way as you might in certain other fields, and you don't need to know the language even necessarily to make music together. And so as a result, our field is so filled with people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds and who've grown up in very, very different countries. And so with Refugee Orchestra Project, we bring together performers and composers uh, who are themselves refugees or immigrants or composers of old who many don't realize uh, are who many don't realize are immigrants so, or refugees. So, for instance, Donizetti, speaking of Belcanto, is a composer who was a refugee from Italy for a long time as hmm. a political refugee. Or there are many, of course, composers who came to the U.S. in the middle of the 20th century to escape World War II, or in some cases earlier, uh, Irving Berlin, who wrote things like God Bless America and so many other iconic pieces of music that we think is quintessentially American, was a refugee who came with his family to escape pogroms in Eastern Europe at the turn of the century. And so I think it's very important for us to recognize culturally how much of what we are and what we do is built on uh, people and the talents of people who came here from other nations. Well, um, we do have to talk about Chicago Opera Theater. Sure, well, we've actually already planned out the 1819 season, yeah. and I can't disclose any of the specifics, <laughs> oh. but I can tell you that there's going to be something, and it, almost definitely there will be something Russian on mm -hmm. there because that is my background and one of the things that I specialize in. Mm -hmm. And there is such a breadth of amazing Russian repertoire that has not been 
done in Chicago, which is very exciting for me and I think for COT. And there's an audience board here. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Dmitry Borosovsky gives a recital at, at uh, Chicago Symphony Center. Man, they come yeah, out of the Well, there's a huge Russian community here as well, yeah. and, and Russians tend to love opera, and there is just so much great opera, mm-hmm. Russian opera, that has been neglected for various reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the music. Yeah. And so uh, we're definitely looking at some Russian repertoire. There's also, I, I believe that we are currently living in a golden age for American opera. Uh, opera Base actually recently did a study of the most popular composers in every nation and who's the most performed composer mm-hmm. across the country. And in Europe, not surprisingly, it's national composers. So yeah. Wagner in Germany yeah. or Tchaikovsky in Russia. In the U.S., the most popular composer in the country is Glass, uh, which is not something most would expect, but mm-hmm. just in general, uh, among all of the classical composers. And... Uh, in addition to Phil Glass, there are composers like Jake Heggie who are creating amazing opera, who are so widely performed all over the country, but who are rarely heard. But those are just two, and there are countless, countless others. Missy Mazzoli, who just won some awards for her opera, Breaking the Waves. Uh, of course, uh, Angel's Bone, which was a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner this year. There are so many amazing works being created by mm-hmm. composers here in this country or that have been created in recent years and that have not yet been seen in Chicago. And many of these pieces have become almost standard repertory in other parts of the country, but I think... Like Dead Man Walking. Exactly. Like only colleges are doing this thing. Yeah, but... Dead Man Walking. And again, with Heggie, there are so many great operas. Moby Dick is another one that I absolutely love. It's, it's kind of big for COT. It, you know, yeah. I think it's definitely doable. It depends what how things are balanced out, but uh, certainly it, he brings the grandeur of the ocean Mm -hmm. and of the whale and everything else to life in a really exciting way. But uh, there are so many uh, amazing pieces that I think we can choose from in that repertory as well. Were you courted by COT or was this sort of like a process where like they had it, you had to like apply for this position? So I, I fortunately I was already in touch with Doug and some other people of COT about other projects when Mm. this position opened up and, uh, there, I was courted by COT to apply for the position. Once that happened, of course, there was a very lengthy mm-hmm. and multifaceted application process mm-hmm. that included many days of interviews and, <laughs> um, and many, many materials that I had to submit. And I believe they literally called everybody I know in the country <laughs> because I kept having people uh, contact me and say, oh, people from COT called us to ask yeah. about you. So I think they called everyone in the music business, Henry Folk go in particular, I think, got on the phone and just called everyone who could have ever worked with me, uh, which I guess it's, it's great that despite that, I, I <laughs> they took me into this position. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I'm not sure if otherwise I would have known about it or realized that it opened up. So I'm very glad that I found out about this because I could not think of a company that would be a better fit for me personally and where I'd want to work more. The staff is fantastic. It's a very useful, energized group of people who are so good at their work and so knowledgeable. Uh, And uh, the board is so engaged and so dedicated to the mission of the organization, which is also fantastic. And the repertoire possibilities are also so wide. There are so many things you can do because COT has the flexibility of working in certain different kinds of spaces, bringing in different kinds of artists. 
it's I think this company is of a great size for having flexibility, and it's also growing. COT has been significantly growing audience numbers and um, uh, and well, fundraising numbers and everything else in the last couple of years, and it, that's slated to go up even more in the next few. I think there are so many possibilities, and I think this company also is growing and reinventing itself at exactly the right time for opera in America and for what culturally I think is happening in our country. Everybody's watching to see what's happening at COT. It's really always been a critical darling. And yeah, like you said, like the, there's a moment right now uh, for American opera, for contemporary opera, and some organization has to capitalize on it because others are not. I, I absolutely hope that we can. And I again, there are not only American opera, but there's so many other great pieces that I think weren't performed much in the 20th century because they weren't relevant for that certain time or mm -hmm. for that certain audience. But I think audiences are changing and also opera audiences are getting younger and more in touch with uh, the world around us. And people want to see really relevant work that really speaks to them. And that's what's important. Of course, you, you might know COT this fall is already starting to move in that direction since Doug mm -hmm. Clayton is taking over. The, the Council by Minotti is the first yeah, yeah. piece this season, which of course yeah. is very timely yeah. and we're already organizing some events events around that as well and uh, Elizabeth Cree was just named I think by Opera Wire as the number one most anticipated opera production nationwide hmm. which is also very exciting nice. and Opera Philadelphia is doing it as well yeah. and they're premiering it in September. So two quick questions for you they're not really quick but um, one is how do you see uh, technology uh, and opera and working together, either how opera is distributed or how it can be incorporated uh, into performances. And also, I want to hear about your ideas for the Young Artist Program, which is a matter that's very near and dear to me. Great. So starting with technology and opera, that's a very big question. And yes. I think it's this whole another discussion that we can have for many, many hours. But, of course, it depends on the piece of music. And so many composers more and more are incorporating technological elements into what they're doing. Mason Bates, who was here working with the Chicago Symphony for a while and uh, is now just premiered his new opera, The Evolution, Revolution of Steve Jobs, just mm -hmm. premiered, for instance, is a composer who has a DJing background mm -hmm. and incorporates that kind of technology into his work. Of course, electronic music in general has been such a big part of making music for a very long time. More and more also in operatic productions, there is a use of technology on the stage in one way or another. I think Death and the Powers by Todd McElroy yeah. was here some time ago. And of course, video design and projection. I just worked on a project with very high level video design where we had um, a very high resolution, gigantic screen the size of the theater combined with certain kinds of projection. And I think if that's done right, and it's very difficult to do that right mm. and to do that on a high level, but if it's really done right, that can also add something new and interesting to a work. Opera Philadelphia is doing a magic flute right now that's highly anticipated. Yeah, that's from Berlin. That also, like, yeah, yeah but, from yeah. Berlin. That yeah. also uses projection and almost is like a cartoon with live yeah. people involved and in it. And the singers are sort of like props in that project, yeah. production. Yeah. Or I'm developing an opera right now with Dan Visconti, who's actually Chicago-based the composer who's Chicago-based, but that's a video game opera that hmm. incorporates elements. It's called Permadeath, and it incorporates elements of video games 
possibilities into uh, an operatic performance. Hmm. I think the singers at this point are slated to wear certain kinds of uh, motion capture, motion capture yeah. on their bodies that allows their avatars to move with them. <laughs> so I, cool. yeah, and those are just some examples. Kamala Sankaram, who's a composer who's been noticed more and more in this country, just created a virtual reality opera that one experiences through VR glasses. Mm. And they've even for that particular project, uh, because most of it had to be pre-recorded for the yeah. VR purposes, uh, but uh, they invented some new type of microphone. That's a 360 microphone. And the way it works is when you turn your head where the sound is coming from, or the, the perception of where the sound is coming from also changes. So if there's a ticking clock in front of you on the wall, as you turn your head to the right, suddenly you hear the ticking through your left ear rather than huh. in front of you. So there's all kinds of interesting technology doing different things in different contexts. Mm -hmm. So the Young Artist Program, mm -hmm. do you have plans? Have you been thinking about that yet? Yes, I actually had an opportunity to hear the young artists just a couple of days ago in performance, or the current young artists. And I think there are so many possibilities. At this point, we're talking to the leadership at Roosevelt, talking to the young artists themselves, and trying to figure out how we can best serve the program and develop the program and bring it to the highest level that it can possibly be. I think the opportunities here are amazing to, uh, because the program is well-funded through Roosevelt and the artists who are part of it get free tuition and this wonderful opportunity to perform with COT. And there are certainly, I think, more things that can be done in terms of collaboration and in terms of the young artists having a lot of access to myself, to the other artists who are coming in to perform as COTS soloists or as conductors and directors. And I think there are many other possibilities on the horizon that we're still exploring, but it's certainly something that I'd like to get very involved in and that I wanted us to make as high quality as possible an experience both for the young artists and for the company as well. That's great, because this is important to me, so I'll be looking for that. Have you been involved with the Young Artist Program? Um, we probably should say that off the, <laughs> <laughs> off the mic. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's. I feel like there's so many other questions I could ask you, like, mm -hmm. about being a woman in this business. And it's not, I mean, it's so, sure. like, that we even have to talk about that. It's like, oh, come on, give me a break, you know? But it's still a topic, you know? Absolutely. But we actually are out of time. Oh, we can, yeah, if you want to talk a little longer, that's fine, yeah. I'm happy okay. To no, but I actually am, I'm, yeah. I'm out of time. So yeah, I, I have problem. another interview to do today. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No, yeah. No. But uh, thank you so much for this. Um, this has of been course. brilliant. And I know that everybody's really excited. I'm really excited for you to be here. And uh, hopefully we can maybe do this again sometime and do a of check course. a check in after you've had your first couple of productions under your belt here. So absolutely, would love to. Thanks so much. Okay, you're really welcome. Thank you. It. Yeah. This just in the two minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week delivered in two minutes tops. KHOU-TV in Houston has confirmed that floodwaters from Hurricane Harvey are swirling over the main stages of the Wortham Theater Center, which houses Houston Grand Opera. The basement is completely flooded and there is water in both theaters. Generators have been turned off and the building is shut down. Charles McKay, the general director of Santa Fe Opera since 2008, will step down following the 2018 summer season, ending a decade-long tenure. American tenor Gregory Kunda 
63, is taking time out next season to conduct Rossini's The Barber of Seville in Venice. He's previously conducted in Bergamo, Italy. Opera Tampa has named guest conductors for the 2017-2018 season, a move made necessary by the resignation of previous artistic director and conductor Daniel Lipton. Bass baritone Nicholas Brownlee loves racing, and he grew up at the Mobile International Speedway in Alabama. Thanks to his friend, he got to race John Thompson's number 54 truck at the MIS last Saturday. Going overseas, a Moscow court has placed director Kirill Sabrenikov under house arrest until October 19 on controversial charges of embezzling a large sum of money from the government. Sabrenikov will be forbidden from corresponding or speaking to the outside world, including internet use, phone calls, and meetings. The court refused to release him on a, on a 68 million ruble bail. Over to the disabled list, American soprano Nadine Sierra was due to open the Covent Garden season in London for Richard Jones' new production of Puccini's La Boheme, but she's withdrawn. Her replacement is the Lebanese-Canadian Joyce Elkouri. The cast also includes Michael Fabiano and Mariusz Kvitschen. Exit stage right, Basso Buffo Enzo Dada died earlier this week in Italy at the age of 79. He was best known for his hilarious interpretations of such roles as Don Bartolo, Don Magnifico, Don Pasquale, and Don Profondo. And on this day, happy birthday to Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who was born in 1749, conductor Karl Böhm, born in 1894, and American director Tito Capobianco, born in 1931. It's also the death day of Bohuslav Martinu, Czech composer who died in 1959, and in 1850, the premiere of Richard Wagner's Lohengrin in Weimar. That's the two-minute drill. Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George and Oliver. Nice little two-minute drill stories this week. Hey, thanks again to Lydia Yankovskaya for talking to Oliver Camacho Super excited to see what her first full season is going to be like here in Chicago. Claire DeVizio coming up in about five minutes on the show. Right now, I want to go a little deeper onto these two-minute drill stories, give you my hot takes. Listen, as we start to see the damage of Hurricane Harvey, everybody is going to have their personal connection to this event. Everyone had their personal connection to Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when it hit New Orleans. My personal connection was April of 05 of that year, my wife and I went on our honeymoon to New Orleans. And when Katrina hit four months later, we saw those places we had been to devastated. It's not something I'm going to forget. The same thing is going to apply for everybody and the way they're going to intersect with Hurricane Harvey. And for me, I didn't know it was going to be through opera. I thought it was going to be through friends or family that I have living there. But when I read about this story that... The stages of Houston Grand Opera are flooded. Basements are flooded. If you've ever been backstage at any opera house, any theater, or into the trap room, these are expensive buildings. There are a lot of moving parts. It is debilitating to think how much damage has happened. And, and that's not to even put a human face onto it. Obviously, lives have been lost already in this hurricane. But when you just look at it through the lens of opera, just for one second, you still realize 
how much of an impact this is going to have. And frankly, with the HGO season just around the corner, what's going to happen? That's a huge question mark. I don't know what those next steps are going to be. We're going to watch that story. Charles McKay leaving Santa Fe Opera. All right. I've never been to Santa Fe Opera. I've followed the company very closely. It would be a total dream to work there, let alone just go there. I think that when we look at the McKay years, and it's a decade, he, he'd been there longer. He'd done another 10 years there, uh, working in other positions. He'd actually, I think, started there 50 years ago, he said in this article in the Santa Fe, New Mexican, that he'd been playing French horn in the orchestra. So he's had a long association with the company. He took over in 2008. The defining gesture of his career, in my opinion, is going to be how he turned around the fiscal and economic standing of the company. 2008, huge recession, stock market crash. It's when he takes over the company. Right now, when you look at those numbers, there's no accumulation of debt. Annual operating budget is at $24 million. Net assets have been doubled to $118 million. Endowment at $50 million. You know I'm a stats guy. Tickets, 91% capacity. There's a lot of money flowing into Santa Fe Opera right now that just was not there 10 years ago. And that money is translated to the stage. 51 productions, 48 different operas, including 43 new productions. Now, partly that's what Santa Fe does, is they do new productions. Most summer festivals, I think, in general, do new work, right? They have uh, a shorter amount of time to fill. They have a huge influx of tourists, holiday goers. So the economics are a little bit easier to present truly new productions. Even still, that's a staggering number. 50, excuse me, 43 out of 48 productions being brand new. And let's not forget some amazing world premieres. Jury, I think, is still out on Evolution of Steve Jobs. But if you go back to 2015, Jennifer Higdon, Cold Mountain, that opera is going to enter the repertoire, if you can't argue it has already. Personnel as well. Harry Bickett, now the chief conductor. So these are going to be big shoes to fill at Santa Fe. The company, it's not poised for greatness because it has achieved greatness. The question is going to be, is someone going to come in and either be able to continue a great financial and artistic streak, or are they going to be able to even improve it. Very big shoes to fill over there. I wish I could say the same thing about Opera Tampa. We talked about this on an earlier show with their conductor and artistic director, Daniel Lipton, stepping down. And now they've got three new conductors for their three shows this season. Jorge Perotti conducting The Barber of Seville by Rossini. Robin Stamper, who's the chorus master and the managing director at Opera Tampa, conducting Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And then Andrew Bessance, who's out of Eugene Opera, conducting Verdi's Macbeth. How embarrassing is it on a show where we are celebrating a phenomenal female conductor that none of those three people that they hired at Opera Tampa are women? Oliver talked about it at the end of the segment, the interview inside the huddle with Lydia Yankovskaya. Female conductors. 
There are many of them out there in the business DAO. And now you look at somewhere like Opera Tampa not able to hire a single woman out of three vacancies. Ridiculous. Absolutely. It's not that hard. It's not that hard to do. And I cannot believe that that company was not able to look around, look at their repertoire, look at good matches for artists. This is not about female or male conductors. It's about finding great artists and not able to put both of those things together. Lastly, the court case of director Kirill Severobrenikov in Moscow under house arrest, I'm going to be admit, I don't know too much about the story based on just what I've read in the newspaper. An addition was this that I found out, that Stuttgart Opera, which is where Severobrenikov is supposed to be staging Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel next month has now summoned the rest of his creative team to Stuttgart to try and continue the production and, and keep it going. First of all, that's totally laudable that you would carry on and, and do this man's work because I don't know all the details. It seems extremely fishy the way he's been put under house arrest. I don't know if the man is guilty of a crime or not. It seems odd to me that he's under house arrest. And I think there's probably more to that story than we're being told. Regardless, what a great move by Stuttgart and what a great move by his team to carry on and do this show. I just, I wonder how hard it would be. I mean, if you have the designers there and you have the, an assistant director there who already knows the show, probably this thing can come off. It's going to be a trickier rehearsal process. I don't think there's any question about that. But I still think this show can go up, and I think it can still be basically in line with Sarah Brennikov's intentions. All right, time for the hometown team. How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. This is the jam-packed episode of Opera Box Score. Um, we have Claire DeVizio. Uh, who is the artistic director or executive director? Both. Okay. <laughs> artistic and executive director. <laughs> of Thompson Street Opera, which is just about to begin their run of... Tell me the name of this opera. Cosmic day. Ray and the Amazing Chris. Excellent. Uh, but first, a little bit about you. So, you are a soprano, mm -hmm. and um, if one goes to your website, clairedevisio.com, uh, you'll see that you recently sang a Leonora, a Verdi Leonora? Yes. Um, I was the cover for a Leonora in St. Petersburg, Florida. And so I was part of the Young Artist cast. Uh, and I got to do a couple of runs, including a rehearsal with orchestra that was recorded. There's a recording on my website. That is probably one of the first standard rep roles I have ever done that is really for my voice. I have done a lot of contemporary music. I have done a lot of operetta and musical theater that is for mezzo or contralto and other things. This was a, this was a good year for me in terms of singing music that felt good. So do you feel like maybe you're going in that direction, like maybe like, you know, Santuzza or like Lyrical Spinto type? Yeah, definitely. Leonora was very comfortable. Um, of course, the Verdi ensembles are like very high. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah! Yeah. But um, all of the arias and stuff felt great. Um, 
And right after that, I went to Cincinnati and did uh, Salud and La Vida Breve, which is a very kind of Zvishny mm-hmm. role, spinto soprano, high, more dramatic mezzo. Um, and that, that actually was probably the most comfortable role I've ever sung. have your own micro opera company um, <laughs> called Thompson Street Opera. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So Thompson Street Opera Company performs exclusively works by living composers. And generally speaking, we are doing that in a small space under 150 seats in English where the audience really feels connected to the performers. Um, some of them are more traditionally recognizable as operas in a kind of modernist classical vein, and some of them are less traditional in terms of orchestration and style, although all of them involve operatic singing. Um, Cosmic Ray, for instance, has a pit orchestra that includes keyboards, drum set, electric guitar, horns, um, and is very kind of pop and rock and disco influenced in Hmm. the score. Um, And there's this really beautiful synthesis of that kind of like fun, danceable musical quality with operatic voices that is really just fun and very effective. So there's no like extended technique stuff for part of the singers. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it is traditional vocal writing um, with basically a band do the singers need to be amplified in order to be heard? No. Uh, so we have set up the space in such a way so that the orchestra will be behind the audience and the singers will be in front of the audience, obviously. So the kind of you will get a surround sound situation without having there be a balance issue. We also did a work in January 
this year called The Final Battle for Love, which was also for keyboards and drum set. Um, and we have a fantastic drummer who played for that show and is also playing for this show, um, Jerry King, who is an expert at kind of toning down his volume for the space that we're in. <laughs> so we'll be in a... I'm very confident that it'll be a well-balanced sound that the audience will get. Are you in Tech Week right now? or We are starting Tech on Sunday. Okay. Which is tomorrow. Yes. But, oh, dear God. Yeah. So, Where is this venue for those of us who are listening in Chicago? The performances will be at the Mason Theater in the Preston Bradley Center. So on Lawrence? It's, uh, okay. Yep. Okay. It's at Lawrence and Sheridan, 941 West Lawrence. Okay. It's uh, the Mason Theater is on the fourth floor of the Preston Bradley Center. Chicago Fringe did their um, Into the... Yes, that's where they did Song from the Uproar. A song from the Uproar, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, great. So I know the venue. I won't get lost. <laughs> so tell us about, uh, yeah, Thompson Street Opera and how it came about and, uh, I mean, how it got from its original place, which is Ann Arbor. Yeah. yeah. So I was not originally intending to start an opera company. Uh-huh. Um I was intending to produce a single piece, which was written by a friend of mine, and I wanted that to be kind of my last hurrah in Ann Arbor before I went off to grad school in Louisville, Kentucky. And so we put together this performance, and we rehearsed, and we put together an orchestra, and we were getting ready to make publicity materials to advertise the show. And I looked at the poster, and I said, I can't just say... Come see an opera. Yeah. It has to be put on by somebody. It can't be like some kids in a basement yeah. somewhere. Yeah, exactly. um, so my friend who was playing the title role, Katie Nix, said, all right, we're going to come up with like a name for this company. Where is the company headquartered? And I said, my apartment. And she said, where is your apartment? Yeah. And I said, Thompson Street. Hence... A very unglamorous story <laughs> uh, created a name that I think embodies our homey but very dedicated, friendly atmosphere that is just worse than people getting together who want to make great art together. And we have no idea that we are the lyric in terms of production value, certainly. Um, but we, we find a lot of real value in the community that we create through the process of making our productions. So for those who are, I mean, I always say this to people, like if you want to be in a show yeah. or if you want to like have a, have something that you feel passionate about, that's not already happening, then do it yourself. You yeah, know? Absolutely. So for those who are maybe inspired to start a company themselves, can you tell us a little bit about like your fundraising and your how you you know raise capital for sure. the productions and um, I'll be honest that a lot of the money uh, right now, especially since we have started over in a new city, comes uh, from me. But the a lot of our probably about. of our income right now comes from ticket sales. Okay. And then we also do fundraising through individual donors. We just became a 501c3 organization 
So we are now in a position to apply for more grants, which we have done this cycle and we will continue to do for this whole year. Um, we're under consideration for a couple of major grants right now and are looking to the next season and such for other applications that we'd be putting in. But um, yeah, it's a mixture of private donors. When we were in Louisville, Kentucky, we had uh, some foundation support from the University of Louisville mm-hmm. Composition Department. And we're hoping maybe to create another relationship here with the university within the next few years that we're in town. Um, Which university? Uh, no idea. Okay. It's an abstract <laughs> idea. Uh, we there was really only one university with a fully formed music program in in Louisville, which is where I went for my master's, and that was kind of Louisville was the genesis of the company as an ongoing uh, entity. I was there uh, doing my master's in voice, and I went the whole first year without doing any arts administrative work, and I really missed it, and I also recalled that uh, as I was working with all of these composers there who were my closest friends, that there's all this art that is just not being performed. There's all this music that is sitting in a drawer somewhere not being seen by anybody. So I had a call for scores in the fall of 2012 and I got over 50 operas sent to me Hmm. and we put together our first season uh, which was from 2013 to 2016, a spring festival in May and June um, of three different shows each year. And that was kind of the, the beginning of this being an ongoing organization that every year brings new works that haven't been seen before using young, talented artists. So if you're getting 50 scores, yeah. what is your vetting process for actually producing something? So the first uh, thing... Well, I'll say I am very interested in pieces, first and foremost, that have a, a story and a libretto that I think will communicate well to a wide variety of audiences. Um, So a lot of the pieces that we have done in the past have been based on existing works of literature, on plays, or other things like that. And then some of them have been original librettos or original stories. Um, And I'm also really looking for logistical capabilities. If you send me a score that is for like a cast of 50 singers and a full orchestra, I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, We're looking for pieces that are really for a smaller group Um, this show that we have is the largest one, Cosmic Ray is the largest show we've produced in Chicago so far. It has a cast of 14 and a small pit orchestra. Um, but we're looking for something that plays well in a small space is really kind of the primary first thing to go through. And then I will sit down and I will listen to if there are any recorded samples and see if I personally like the piece. Um, I am not going to produce something that I don't like myself. Um, and I will say I have a very wide range of musical tastes. So there is nothing that automatically disqualifies you style-wise for a piece that I might be interested in. So I understand you're actually not singing in Cosmic Ray. Yeah, I don't sing in our productions. So can you tell me a little bit about like your 
personal singing goals versus the goals you might have set for Thompson Street and how yeah. they might go hand in hand or be in conflict with each other. You know? Absolutely. Um, I, I love singing. Singing is a big part of my life. I am having sung in the past in productions that I have produced both with the Gilbert and Sullivan Society at the University of Michigan, um, where I was on the board of producers there, and also in the first couple of seasons of Thompson Street Opera, which was more out of necessity necessarily than a specific desire. There was one role that was written expressly for me, which I did choose to perform. Um, I feel that it is impossible for me to do my job as a producer if I am worrying about myself as a singer. And both of those elements of my artistry are very important to me, but it is not productive for me to try to do them at the same time. So I always want to have a balance between those two aspects of my performance. I intend to continue working as an administrator with the company. Um, and I also intend to continue pursuing singing with other companies. Um, and I don't really see a conflict there. I'm not interested in being the kind of singer who is on the road for 10 months of the year. That's not what I want. I like to be someplace that I live and call my home. And I like to travel. I certainly do. Um, but I don't want to be gone more than I'm home. And I don't want to be gone so much that it prevents me from doing the work that I do with the company, which I feel is important and a more unique gift that I can give to the community, perhaps, than uh, my singing. Uh, I don't, there are a great many fabulous singers out there. I would love to be one of them, but it will not ruin anything if I am not on a recording that people are playing for their students in 50 years. So, Especially since recording is not really a way to have a career anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell us a little bit about Cosmic Ray. We've been hearing a little bit from you, but let's, let's dig into this actual piece. Sure. So Cosmic Ray and The Amazing Chris is a story about a artistically inclined 20 something who is having a quarter life crisis mm. and the kind of there is a lot of uh specific relationship drama to the piece that certainly many of us have either uh witnessed ourselves or been a part of but i think at the core of the piece is also this question of like what is your identity if you feel like the world has wronged you. Hmm. And Chris has gotten this idea in his head that like he's a genius and nobody appreciates him and his solution is going to be to be like angry and self-centered. And obviously that does not work out. Hmm. <laughs> um, but he has a series of epiphanies throughout the piece that kind of lead him towards a more productive path by the end. And throughout the story, he is reading his favorite comic book called Cosmic Ray, a invented series uh, that was created for this opera. And so the superhero 
and supervillain become characters in the opera as he reads these books. And there are a lot of, you know, wonderful parallels in these books to what he is going through in his real world life. And the central action in the real world of the piece is he and his two best friends getting ready to go to Comic-Con. Okay. And he is going dressed as Cosmic Ray. And this is going to be, you know, a formative experience for him, and it's so important. And so what happens if that doesn't go exactly the way that he plans for it to go? Um, so that, that is kind of the arc of the piece, and there is a lot of really moving self-discovery and conflict that happens throughout the piece that I think everyone has experienced in some way in their life. And the way that it is set musically is very effective to really make you kind of feel this discomfort that he has. And outside of the like discomfort parts, <laughs> there is a lot of just absolutely super fun music. And who's the composer? The composer is Eric Lindsay, and the librettist is Tracy Trules, and he is a graduate of Indiana University. I saw the first half of this piece uh, performed at IU in 2014, and we commissioned the second half of the piece. Um, So this will be a premiere of the complete work. Well, everybody can go to thompsonstreetopera.com. Is that thompsonstreetopera.org? Yes. It's T H O M. Yep. Thompson. And um, is street spelled out? I forget. It is. Okay, so topsheetopera.org. Mm-hmm. There's also clairedivisio.com. There is. Uh, we should have links on the website. I'm really excited to go to one of these. This is a really, like, we get to September and everything starts happening. Like, August yeah. is like a desert. Right. <laughs> uh, and then September, it's insane. Explosion. Um, yeah, that your second week is competing with the Lyric Opera concert in the parks. Aha. Yeah. And also the Collaborative Arts Institute Festival, which has Susanna Phillips and Nick Pond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a there's lot a lot. Stuff. There's lots to do. So I'm going to try to go uh, next weekend if Great. possible. So awesome. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right, that's our show for this week. Good call. Bad call. My good call is something called Chicago Summer Dance. This was a huge festival put on here in Chicago by the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, which culminated last Saturday with a day-long series of dance exhibits from around the world, culminating in five groups performing at the Pritzker Pavilion in Millennium Park. If you've been to Chicago, you live in Chicago, you know that that is a huge venue. I took my son, my eight-year-old, and I went to see this uh, 80-minute dance concert of these five great groups from contemporary dance to footwork, stepping, hip-hop dance. It was incredible. And then that was followed by all the audience moving to the Cloud Gate, or the Bean, as it's called, and with an old-school Chicago house DJ creating a huge dance party. We had a total blast. It was absolutely fun. I cannot wait to do that again next year. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager of WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. 
On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. And on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And hey, do us a favor and leave a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as summer draws to a close this Labor Day weekend. Speaking of which, we're on vacation next week for Labor Day. I'm camping. Pray for good weather for me. And then we're back with an all-new podcast on Monday, September 11th. More opera headlines and insider opinions. Thanks to our guests, Lydia Yankovskaya and Claire DeVizio. Join us on the 11th. Cheers. <laughs>